So today I'm sharing about sin and faith and missing the mark. And I'm going to read a story where the woman comes and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears because they were in the home of a Pharisee where Jesus had been invited to come and have lunch. We're reading from Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his home for lunch and Jesus accepted the invitation. As they sat down to eat, a woman of the streets heard he was there and brought an exquisite flask filled with expensive perfume. Going in, she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping with her tears falling down upon his feet. And she wiped them off with her hair and kissed his feet and poured the perfume on them. When Jesus' host, a Pharisee, saw what was happening and who the woman was, he said to himself, This proves that Jesus is no prophet. For if God had really sent him, he would know what kind of a woman this woman is. The Pharisees judged the woman harshly. And they also judged Jesus harshly in this situation. Now this was bad press for Jesus. Can you imagine the, the headlines? Immoral, sinful woman publicly kisses the feet of Jesus at a party. What's been happening here is uh, there's been judging. Uh, Jesus spoke up and answered the man's thoughts and said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. All right, teacher, Simon replied, go ahead. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, $5,000 to one and $500 to the other, but neither of them could pay him back. So he kindly forgave them both, letting them keep the money. Which do you suppose loved him most after that? I suppose the one who owed him the most, Simon answered. Correct, Jesus agreed. Then he turned to the woman and said to the Pharisee, Look, see this woman kneeling here? When I entered your home, you didn't bother to offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You refused me the customary kiss of greeting, but she's kissed my feet again and again from the time I first came in. You neglected the usual courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's covered my feet with rare perfume. Therefore, her sins, and they are many, are forgiven. So she loved me much, but the one who is forgiven little shows little love. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then the men at the table said to themselves, who does this man think that he is going around forgiving sins? <laughs> and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's interesting. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now Jesus described the beautiful logic of a person who owes much, greatly appreciating being forgiven much. She loved Jesus in return for this forgiveness and she publicly demonstrated a love to him. And Jesus compares her love and honour for him with the neglect he received from the owner of the house. The woman was a sinner. That's what the Bible says. She was a sinner. 
And the word for sinner in the Greek is harmaton, which means missing the mark. So remember what I called today's word was sin and faith and missing the mark. Now here we've got it all. She was a sinner. She was forgiven for all her sins, which were many, it said. The word sin there, the, the noun, sin, harmatia in the Greek, is missing the mark. Now, missing the mark in the Old Testament meant disobeying the commandments and the religious rules. That was missing the mark. And the men at the table had said, who does this man think he is going around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In that one final sentence to her, Jesus prophetically declared the difference between missing the mark or the target in the Old Testament, which is the law and the, and the rules, the Jewish rules, and missing the mark or target in the New Testament. She was being judged by people of missing the mark according to the Old Testament, but she was responding by faith in Jesus and hitting the target according to the New Testament, which had not yet come into effect. So it was kind of a, a preview of what was to come by faith. The mark to be missed in the Old Testament of being judged by the commandments had been fully met by Jesus. He was under that covenant. And there was no excuse. He had to obey. But he fully obeyed. And the Bible tells us he was without sin. Now Jesus took his sinless life through the cross and was killed even though death had no claim on him, according to the New Testament, and the scriptural law of sin and death. Which says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death came upon all men, because all sin. So that was the law of sin and death. But Jesus didn't sin. So he took his sinless life through the cross. He then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then sent the Holy Spirit upon humanity. And then there came a new way that sin was to occur with a new kind of missing the mark. The New Testament mark to aim for was of the belief in the fact that we have received the gift of the sinless life from Jesus' death and resurrection and can now live in the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, not under the law of sin and death. This is why Jesus said very clearly to his disciples before he left in John chapter 16, if I don't go away, so he said, I've got to go to my Father, but if I don't do that, the Holy Spirit can't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world. In other words, he'll, he'll convince them about what sin is. He'll convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So he tied sin, the conviction of the heart, to belief in him. That is the big sin in the New Testament. So the new definition for sin that the Holy Spirit is constantly convicting the hearts of all people about today is unbelief in the in 
indwelling life of Jesus. God wants that life of his to be expressed through us. The Apostle Paul picked this up. He had that encounter with Jesus and was told that he was going to go and speak to the whole world or to the non-Jews about his life in them. That was a direct revelation. And he says in the book of Galatians, the just will live by faith. This new life is now going to justify us. And he also said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So he got it. Now, there are other words in the original language in the New Testament, in the scriptures, that are used for deliberately disobeying God. Not just hamartia, which is missing the mark. Uh, but these other words only occur a few times. A handful of times for one and a dozen times for the other. That's lawlessness and transgression. And they're, they're real words. They're deliberately disobeying God. So we've got to make room for them. But the one and only word for sin, as missing the mark, harmatia, is used over 250 times, as in the above scripture. So when we, let's talk about sin, that's sin. And it's elsewhere throughout the New Testament Bible. So missing the mark was sin in the Old Testament. It's also got a Hebrew word, which means the same kind of thing, hata turning from the path, right? deviating off from the law or missing the mark. Now, the Old Testament discernment, if you're looking for where sin was, it wasn't hard to find it in the Old Testament. It was a much easier target to see and to judge because it was the observable outward behaviour concerning the Jewish rules and the Ten Commandments. Oh, look, there's a sinner. Oh, there's a sinner. They're not dressed properly. They haven't washed properly. There's another sin over there. And it was on. Okay. And there were many sinful acts of behaviour to be observed. And even the notable ones that we all know, like idolatry and anger and violence and killing, sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, stealing, lying, coveting, all there to see, still there to see. And these were judged by man and by God. The mark that we miss in the New Testament is an inner hidden quality of the heart of faith that only God can judge. They were under the law. We are under grace, under, accountable. However, I want to make it very clear that the overarching fact in life for us as Christians is that God still requires that we obey his commandments. He still requires that. Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law but to establish it. So you don't get away with oh, easy greasy grace as some people say. No, grace is the empowerment which we'll see now. How do we fulfil God's requirement of us to obey his commandments. Paul writes that our heart of believing in the life of Jesus within us is the only way that we can please God and willingly desire to obey his commandments. That's on offer. This is because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us giving us the same desire as Jesus had, it's his life, to do the will of his Father. And this is God's gift of grace to us. 
And in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul writes about it and he says, The righteous requirements of the law can now be fulfilled in us who walk not according to our human nature, but according to the Spirit. So that the right living that the law commanded could now flow freely from us who live a shared life together with Jesus in his divinity instead of a life isolated and limited by its own flawed human nature or condition. Okay, so now why would somebody miss the mark today in this world in which we live? Hamartia, under the new covenant of grace. How does a person miss the mark? Well, they miss the mark if they were totally ignorant that there even was a mark. Or if they had no knowledge of God and didn't believe that there was a God. They'd miss the mark if they worshipped other gods. They'd miss the mark if they weren't interested in God. They'd also miss the mark if they'd been told incorrectly from behind a pulpit that it was all about rules and commandments and outward observance. They'd be missing the mark. Rather than being told that it's about grace and faith and an inner commitment of the heart of faith. So these errors of understanding, they remain and abound today. Now this new understanding took time to transition out of the religious mindset of the early apostles, the Jewish apostles. They thought it was still a matter of being under the law. They genuinely thought that. They said, you still have to obey the commandments, which, which is fine, but they didn't have the revelation of how Paul saw that as being a possibility. But they said, you have to not only obey the commandments, but also the Jewish religious rules. And they believed that while still passionately believing that Jesus Christ was God and that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. So those early apostles were taught, as time went on, by the Holy Spirit how to receive the revelation of this new covenant. And through their struggles of faith, they came to understand that they could preach that full gospel of grace and faith to the Gentiles also so that they could hit the mark, which means... Not sin, <laughs> to a degree. I think it's all about to a degree, myself, personally. Let's <laughs> just personally. The Apostle Peter was told to preach the good news to a Gentile centurion called Cornelius. And he resisted that command from God at first because it broke the Jewish laws of entering the home of a Gentile, not to mention the eating of Gentile food, which was sinful and unclean for a Jew, even a Christian Jew, according to Peter. Can't do that. But Peter did what he was told, went, visited the house, even though the first thing he said when he walked in was, you know, it's not right for a Jew to be here in your head. But he was amazed to see the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to them and filling them with his divine life. Peter later describes to the other apostles the supernatural work of God upon the hearts of the Gentiles. Remember, God is wanting to set the apostles up, as he did with Paul later on, to totally understand that it was God that did all the work. Now, God's doing all the work. We are his mouthpiece, we are his body, but we express him because he's doing the work. So, so he says to them in Acts chapter 11, he's apostle and disciple friends. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the change of mind. That's interesting. This is repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles, not repentance that turns away from sin. I mean, they're both legitimate. That's, they're both repentance. But this repentance that God's talking about in the New Testament is one that leads to life. In other words, you get your thinking in gear as to where does life come from and how does it happen. And Peter went on to say, later in the book of Acts, describing the same, same scenario, he says, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having purified their hearts by faith. It's next, chapter 15. It was finally Paul who unfolded the truth of the universal grace of God through Jesus Christ. A universal grace means that Jesus died for the sins of all mankind and that all are forgiven. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But that is not universalism. And we saw that the Apostle John writes that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, not just in the church. And that means every human heart, he said, is in the world, convincing them of sin because they don't believe. Paul also says... For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all mankind, especially to those who believe. 1 Timothy 4.10 You see, it's all there on offer, but who takes up the offer? And you think, well, does God want this so that he got an ordered life instead of have chaos in the world? Look, it's, it's so relational with God, it's beyond what I could describe. But one thing I know is for sure, he wants us in our believing this to enjoy the life that we do have with all of its chaos. He wants to enjoy it to the maximum that, that we can because he knows that that kind of belief lifts us above so much of the unnecessary suffering. We don't get away without suffering, but there's a lot of unnecessary suffering in the head and so on. Anyway, well, that's universal. But that is not universalism. Universalism, it's, it's a doctrine in itself that everybody accepts it. They say, well, it's being processed by everybody. How many people believe what God wants them to believe? The offer is universal, but the take-up of the offer is not. Just want to make that distinction. And many who call themselves Christians today may be unaware of what sin is and unaware of what the mark is that they're supposed to aim at, namely a full commitment to living as a partaker in their inner life of the divine spirit of Christ. Simply, I'm going to believe that. Now, I have to seriously ask myself that question every waking hour of my life. It is, do I believe that's happening now? And all I can say is, I believe, help my unbelief. In Mark chapter 9. It's easy to look at people's behaviour in the outside world and legalistically judge them as sinners. You say, oh, there's one. Yeah. Oh, look at that. <laughs> that's a sinner. 
But Paul warns us against doing that. God's looking at the heart. Now, I'm not saying everybody's let off scot-free, but everybody's there as a candidate for the grace and forgiveness of God, of course. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, what have I to do with judging outsiders, those in the outside world? So who gives account to who? And who gives account to what? In the Old Testament, God's people were accountable to God and under the law. So they were accountable to the law and judged by the law. In the New Testament, we're all accountable to God and under grace. So we will each give account to God about receiving his grace that works by faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul starts to drive this home. He wants the best for the churches that he's going to. 2 Corinthians 35, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Well, there you are. That's the test. I see around in the days in which we live and what's been happening I believe the church has become more occupied with judging one another than with loving one another. You've just got to listen. The day will come when God will bring people before himself face to face. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, this is what Paul says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of each one's heart and at that time each will receive what do you think they'll receive? Well the Bible here says at that time each will receive his praise from God. So we can be so busy judging one another instead of loving one another but on that day when everything when the appointment is there at the right time, to have a look at everything, God might say to someone on that day, look, your doctrine was too pushy and legalistic and brought condemnation. However, I loved your heart of sincerity to do your best for my kingdom. Or, say to another one, your doctrine was too pushy and self-serving and promised healing and prosperity on demand and brought confusion. However, I loved your heart of generosity and enthusiasm to do the best for my kingdom. Or he might say, you felt so bad about yourself that you kept giving up and running away and doing yourself more harm than good. But I loved your humble heart of transparency. I saw it breaking down about how bad you thought you were. And if only you could get to me, come and give me a hug. Plus 10 other scenarios. How many would you like? And then he might say, come on, all of you. Give one another a hug and stop arguing about every, how everybody missed the mark and by how much they missed it. In Romans chapter 14, he says, As I live, every knee shall bow to me, says the Lord, and every tongue will confess to God. 
we'll all give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, don't let's pass judgment on one another any longer. But decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Otherwise, you're no longer walking in love. So don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in that manner is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, I just want to finish this little quote from Romans by talking about faith. This is Paul speaking. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. There's a freedom in some, and there's others that are still bound by certain rules that they feel God is wanting from them. And if they're doing that to honour God, God says, let them do it. But blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts condemns himself if it is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It misses the mark. Faith is surrendering your spiritual agenda into the heart and hands of God who alone can bring about the supernatural outcomes that we try and guess at or try and make happen. So Paul had a burden for that in the church. He just wanted to, to set them free from that era of judgment. But nonetheless, Paul sets that mark as the highest goal of life, the upward call, the, the high call of God, or the the upward heavenly invitation of God to, to us. He's saying that if you don't have faith in this grace that works in you through the Holy Spirit, then you're missing the mark one way or the other. You work it out, he says. <laughs> For yourself, test yourself. Don't try and test anybody else. But then he admits his own struggle. In Philippians 3 verse 12 he says, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have fully made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward that mark, which is God's heavenly invitation to us all. So it's a work in progress. It's God's great love that draws us towards him by the Holy Spirit to respond to his invitation to reach this mark. It's not just our energy, I'm going to get that mark. I mean, he puts that energy there and we respond to the Holy Spirit, energising us. But we, he wants us to respond to his invitation to re reach this mark because our being with him is the highest mark that he desires for us to reach. It is not... If you're not totally obedient, I just don't know if I can love you, really. No, it's our wanting to be with him is the highest mark. And because he knows that that is what will fulfil our heart's desire, how does he know that that is what will fulfil our heart's desire? Because it's what fulfils his heart's desire for us to be with him. 
And his great love is matched by his great mercy as he sees us stumbling forward. Without that, I don't know what I'd do personally. He sees our imperfect efforts, but when he also sees a perfect heart of intent, that is what blesses him and us. That's how we test ourselves. Do I mean this, God? Didn't seem like it 10 minutes ago. I know, I know, it didn't look like I did, but I really do. All right. Now, there are barriers in our human thinking that prevent this truth of grace from becoming established. One barrier is that we feel we're too insignificant or unworthy to receive this kind of gracious love from God. That could be the greatest barrier of all. It just, it just seems like such a paradox that such an almighty, holy God would be interested in such a flawed human being like us. The Bible shows that thinking like that is a lie. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble heart and a humble spirit to bring to life the spirit of the lowly and to bring to life the heart of the contrite ones. To bring to life. Even with the highest intention of our heart of faith, we can still get disappointed in our falling short of fully believing and trusting the gift of grace. We find ourselves saying with Paul, the good that I would, I do not, and the bad things I do not want to do, I do. But Paul knew that the spirit of the life of Christ within would always lift him above the limits of his frail and feeble human nature if he pressed towards the mark and didn't give up. And when we do that, we're exercising the greatest kind of faith and love towards God that exists. Just like the woman who busted into the party and kissed his feet and, and brought almost shame upon herself. She said, I don't care. I love this man, my saviour. And he says, your sins are forgiven because of your faith. The only way we can truly appreciate, and I'll finish with this, and give thanks to our God who is in the highest place, is to know him as the one who loves us in our lowly place and that that is in fact the most perfect place. We need never be ashamed of our place of lowliness because that is where he wants to dwell with us. That is the glory of the cross and the resurrection. And we can now sing Amazing Grace, who saved a wretch like me. We can know what it means from he who dwells in the highest place. Amen. <laughs>